0: But it's time to go from the NFL to college football. We'll take, not a backward step, but uh, I guess a one-level-below step and uh, talk some college football with one of the best to do it. Uh, It's uh, from The Athletic, Chris Vanini. I'm going to butcher that name, too, and I just probably did, Chris, and I'm really, really sorry, man. Please forgive me.
1: No, you got it right. I tell you what, all the teachers got it wrong in elementary school growing up, (laughs) but whenever I... But whenever I come on the radio these days, like everybody gets it right, and they don't think they got it right. So it's like the reverse.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Chris, thanks for your time, my man. Hope everything's going well where you are at. Hey, this college football situation, the status of it, how worried are you when Clemson, LSU, Texas A&M have these COVID-19 positive tests coming up on these players?
1: So I'm more worried than I was two weeks ago, but – I think each situation kind of has different contexts. You know, we knew that players were going to test positive when they returned to campus. That was always going to happen. They were going to, they would have contracted it elsewhere. You know, they weren't always in the, uh, the sterile environment. So players testing positive upon return to campus is not that big of a deal in terms of the big picture of this all. Uh, obviously you don't want anybody to have it, but people were going to have it. The the, the, the concern comes when you're a few weeks into this now, when you're, when you've got guys going through workouts, you you've got Kansas state shutting down because some guys contracted it at a party. You've got LSU where some guys contracted it because they went to a bar. You've got two people at USF contracted it a week into workouts. So that's where it gets concerning. I, I think the big thing is, you know, where are we two, three weeks from now? If we're still having major outbreaks, on these teams and they've been back on campus for a month, then I will start to really get concerned because the whole argument the schools were making was that we'll get them onto campus, into our buildings. They'll be in in, in a safer environment. We'll take care of them the right way and they'll be safer. essentially was the argument and therefore we will be able to play football. If that is not playing out to be the case, then we'll have some more questions. So not great right now, but I'm still a few weeks away from being fully concerned.
2: On that subject, Chris, Ohio State made news uh, because they had it was leaked that they asked their players to sign a waiver and that there could be quote unquote punishment if they didn't do basically, I think, everything in their power to try and avoid the COVID 19 um, situations in terms of social distancing. You think that's something that more teams, especially some of the higher tier programs, will look at doing?
1: Yeah, I I think I'd be surprised if most schools weren't doing something like this. Now, I know like Ohio State and some schools have tried to just refer to it as a pledge. They're trying to say it's not legally binding. Some places like SMU have pretty detailed waivers. From what I've read from various stories, lawyers are kind of split on whether or not this could be legally enforceable. Um, And that kind of brings back the whole issue of this why college sports coming back is so much different than the pro sports because in the pro sports they have a union, they bargain these things. It's a business. Everybody's paid and it works out when the kids don't have any real power in this situation. Uh, schools will try to do things like this. And you know, it, I, I, I get the idea that, Hey, you want to tell kids not to go to the bar because something like will have happened happen, but you don't have a lot of schools that are publicly saying, if a kid doesn't want to come back to campus cause he's not safe, we're going to hold – he's going to keep his scholarship. Now, a few schools have, but I feel like if that was really happening, you'd have a lot of schools being very public about this. But nobody wants to do that because they want their kids back on campus because they want to play football because it drives everything that comes in an athletic department. So college sports is in a much more difficult spot with this stuff.
0: Uh, Chris, with the situation uh, is what it is. With in the future, if they decide to play just all-conference games – uh, based on the, the risk. What do independents like Notre Dame and BYU do? Yeah, that's kind of yet to be seen because you know I the a lot of the independents,
1: the armies, the the the, the U masses, the New Mexico States, the Liberties, they play each other. So if worse comes to worse and like nobody's playing conference games, I mean first of all you got Notre Dame. And schools are not going to want to cancel their games with Notre Dame, especially if it's a home game. That, that's that's a big deal for all of them. But let's just say we get to a situation where that happens and all the independents are on their own. I imagine that they would schedule each other, maybe play each other twice if they had to. I mean, New Mexico State and Liberty have played twice, uh, I think the last two years, because they, they, they needed to find some games for their schedule. So I, it, it, it's doable. It's it's certainly not ideal, but I think a school maybe like a Notre Dame might be in better
0: shape, and maybe even a BYU too. Uh, Oregon is supposed to get Ohio State in Austin Stadium in Week Two. How big of a deal would it be, even though if they were to get Ohio State, but have no fans? Yeah,
1: that's you know that's an interesting part of this because how much is a home field advantage really going to be worth? Probably not as much, you know. Whether or not fans are going to be there. I don't know. Different states have said different things. I remain a bit skeptical because even if you have 20,000, 30,000 fans, you're going to need to make sure everybody's masked. You're going to have to make sure the concourses aren't packed at at halftime or before the game or after the game. Are you going to limit the stadium to certain parts with fans? Are you going to stagger the entrances? Are you going to stagger when they can leave? What happens if there's a lightning delay? Everybody needs to go hang out on the concourse. So these are a lot of the logistic things that have yet to be worked out. Um, I I think right now most people are just focused on whether or not they're going to play first.
2: With that being the case, Chris, uh, do you think someone like Oregon, as Ajay pointed out, getting Ohio State in Week 2, obviously that would have been a huge money draw. It's a premier game. It was going to be on television. If fans aren't allowed to attend that, is that something where Oregon goes back to Ohio state and we see maybe a renegotiation of those home and home deals, or is it just kind of that you missed out and that's how it's going to be?
1: I'm not sure. Cause you know, we've looked at contracts, you know, my colleague Nicole Arback and I have looked at contracts if games get canceled. Sometimes there's things called force majeure clauses, whether or not there's fans though, I'm not totally sure how that would work uh, financially. It's a good question. I mean, we, we've, We have wondered if games get canceled, how that's going to affect contracts. But the game going forward, but without fans, I would imagine it probably wouldn't change much. It would just kind of be unfortunate on on the home team's end.
2: How much uh, uh, control or influence is the NCAA as a whole having in this whole process since obviously COVID, as you mentioned, with the the stadiums and fans, it's kind of a state-by-state thing. Are they kind of just leaving the power up to the – Schools themselves to figure out based on what their situation is. Or are they trying to come up with something to kind of uniform this all?
1: That's the problem. Is that the NCAA doesn't really have that kind of power here because it goes state to state, and the you know the NCAA doesn't really have the power to demand schools do certain amount of testing. Some schools may not even be. Some schools can afford a lot more than others as well. So there isn't a national standard and that's going to be a question come the season if, if, one, if you're playing a team that doesn't have as good a testing procedures and is maybe in a hot spot are you not going to want to travel there or are you not going to want them to travel to you? That's something that I think some schools are going to have to face at some point uh, whether or not they want to play these games it's, it's probably going to come up at some point and some schools are going to have to make some decisions
0: Chris Fanini of The Athletic college football writer, does an incredible job. Uh, he's got a really good article on a referee story. I, I, we'll have to get to that here in just a bit. It's time to talk some on-the-field football. And Clemson has been this dynasty that looks just unshaken, and Trevor Lawrence has been at the head of it. Uh, is Clemson, again, that team to beat? Or can Alabama, LSU, or these other teams, I guess uh, LSU is one of those other teams is, who can have a shot to maybe knock, uh, knock Clemson off their crown?
1: LSU will be interesting. They're in a tough spot to repeat because they lost. I think they had they tied the record for draft picks in a single draft this year, mm-hmm. and they lost both their coordinators and, and a lot of the staff. Joe Burrow turned Joe Burrow and Joe Brady together. The offense coordinator. They may have been a, a, a kind of a once in a generation tandem. You know, Joe Burrow broke almost every passing record there was, so that's probably not going to happen again. But Clemson will be there. Ohio State will be there. Alabama will probably be there. And after that, it's it's a mix of teams. May, maybe in Oklahoma, maybe in LSU, maybe a Georgia, uh, maybe in Oregon. Um, so I, I think we're going to again see the same handful of teams at the top, but uh, kind of the way college football is right now.
2: Uh, about the college football, I don't, and I don't know if you have any insight in this. Do you think that, because I'm with you, uh, up until this point I've been Pretty confident. The last couple of weeks have made me a little bit more shaky. If this continues to go this way with the pandemic, do you think the NFL could see an influx of players who decide to just jump in the supplemental draft as opposed to risking not having a college football season at all?
1: That seems likely. I haven't heard that from from anybody. I don't even know when the supplemental draft is. Best I could uh, find
2: is it says maybe July.
1: Yeah, it looks like uh, last year it was in July. So it's I, I find it unlikely because a lot of those guys are not eligible for it. Um, you'd be looking at people who are mostly rising seniors, I guess. Um, and and if, they didn't have a, if they didn't feel they had a chance to get drafted before, they probably wouldn't. Now, the question is, if we can't do football in the fall and if everything gets pushed back to the spring, then what happens? Then you have the season coinciding with the draft. You might have a lot of star players who are NFL eligible not playing. That's a whole other can of worms that, that hopefully we don't have to get down to yet. but as it relates to the supplemental draft, I would be I, I'd be very surprised, maybe maybe a kid or two, but uh, so far, it's, it's not something I'm, I'm, I'm seeing hearing much of.
0: With the G5 teams not being invited to the college football playoff because of lack of scheduling or for one reason or another, do you feel like it's time to expand the playoff or you like it at four?
1: No, I I want to expand it. And I I think we're going to get there. The the, the, the feeling among the people who used to be there or are there are clearly more open to that than they were a few years ago. I think a large part of that is when UCF goes undefeated two years in a row and doesn't even get a shot. Everybody knows that was kind of ridiculous. And the other part is it would probably be worth more money. And I think the fact that we're seeing the same handful of teams every year is another reason to do that. The fact that Mm. the Pac-12 has been left out however many years in a row now, that's not good for the sport of college football. You need... College football has always been regional. You need teams in every region of the country who have a shot at the playoffs. And if the Pac-12 knows that they don't have a shot that, that, that there's nobody in their league that, that really has a shots worth looking at. That's going to affect interest in the sport out there. Big 10 has been, had been cut off a couple of years before Ohio state made it this year. So it, it, for the long-term health of the game, I really think they need to, you you give it to the, to the power five conference champions. You give it, you give one spot to a group of five and you give two wildcard spots that makes the regular season mean, just mean just mean just as much because you're going to have these these big games that make the conference championship mean something. You see, Ohio State Alabama just announced the playoff series, however many years down the road, because the playoff allows you, the playoff gives you some wiggle room. You can lose a game and still make the playoff. And if you expand it, if you expand it again, it's going to give you more incentive to play those Ohio State Alabama games, those Ohio State Texas games, and that will continue to make them college football regular season feel more important. That's more important than, oh, no, we can't lose a single game or we're done. You need big games. Attendance is down. That's why these schools are scheduling these games. I think for the long-term help, help of the sport, it would be beneficial if the playoff expanded to eight and only to eight.
2: So, uh, Chris, more often than not, I think most people would agree the SEC is the best football conference from top to bottom. More, I think they're very top-heavy. Who do you think is the second conference? I'm from Big Ten country. I, I like to think that they're pretty much they they've got to be close with Penn State, Michigan, and um, you know Wisconsin. But obviously, Clemson has a lot to say for the ACC in a down conference. Who's the second best conference to you?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's got to be the Big Ten. I mean, even, it, although I do think Ohio State is a good step ahead of everybody else in that league. Penn State is solid. They've made I think three straight New York six games. Michigan is solid. Wisconsin is solid. Iowa solid. Um, Wisconsin, you know, got teams that go to the Rose Bowl and go to their New Year's Six games. The problem is the ACC is a one-team league; it's just Clemson. The Big Twelve is Oklahoma, and then some. Oh, Big Twelve's got depth, but you need your top teams to be your top teams. And Texas has not been there really much uh, over the past decade, outside of a year or two here. The Pac-12 has been up and down. It, it, it's had some good years, but the problem is it's what three years in a row? I think they've missed the playoff. Mm. That really hurts the image of a league. Um, so I gotta say it's the Big tenant at number two. Uh,
0: Chris, year or I guess year one of stint two for Gary Anderson at Utah State was a roller coaster that ended in major disappointment. What do you see out of the Aggies this year with the loss of Jordan Love, Tepanolli, and David Woodward?
1: Yeah, they. I mean, they talk about losing some star power. And even um, you lose your quarterback and you lose a lot on the defensive side of the ball as well. So it, it's going to be a real – I'm curious to see, you know, last year I know they brought in like more than 50 kids into the program. I, I think – I'm curious what that depth looks like now with, with those guys having year. I know they got, what, four guys competing for the starting quarterback job. That, that's where it always starts. But, uh, yeah, I, it was a disappointing finish, but, you know – Utah State was contending for the Mountain West championship deep into the season, um, even if things didn't end up playing out the way they wanted. So it it was, it ended up a disappointment. uh, I I get, but uh, I still think there's a chance that they can turn things around. It's interesting because the Mountain West, half the league has new head coaches. Yeah, I mean, I know getting Gary Anderson. I know it's the second stint; he's been in the league, but his second year in the program. You've got tons of teams in that league. Hawaii was in the championship game last year. They have a new program. San Diego a new coach. San Diego State won what 10 games last year. They got a new coach. So there's there's a real opportunity I think in in the Mountain West for a lot of teams to make some moves.
2: Chris uh personally I'm uh, curious uh AJ started out asking about scheduling wise for independence if they decide to go with the just conference thing. Uh, I know Notre Dame obviously is a big enough brand that they've been able to kind of skirt the issue and even they made the agreement with the ACC on kind of the limited joining. Do you think at some point with maybe more potential expansion that the league is going to move away from these independents it seems like, in other sports maybe more so, but it seems like it hurts you not to have a chance to play in that conference championship game specifically? Well,
1: most of these independents outside of Notre Dame, BYU, and I guess Army would rather be in in a conference. Uh, I mean, New Mexico State... Would like to be in the Mountain West or Conference USA. UMass surely would love to be in the American. Um, Liberty has offered reportedly offered big payments to get into Conference USA or the Sun Belt, and they were turned down. So th- th- those teams would like to be in there. Now UConn, I know they left the American. That was largely a basketball and other sports move to get back into the Big East, which doesn't have football. So I. I it, the teams that are independent generally aren't there by desire. I mean, it's certainly a way to survive. They, they do not want to drop down to FCS like Idaho did a few years ago. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not the ideal place to be, but it's, it's still better than being in FCS for the time being. So, you know, they'd love to, most of those schools would love to join a conference, but those conferences are not looking to get too bloated either.
0: Uh, final question for me, Chris. How fun was that article to write on the Beef Ref? That's still, those stories are just absolutely awesome.
1: Yeah, I wrote a story like two years ago about Mike DeFee, kind of known as Beef Ref or Muscles Ref, the, the big guy. He's <laughs> he, so I, good. I went to a – uh, it was a story a couple of years ago about kind of what it's like to be a ref. And I went to a referee clinic here in, in Dallas, and he led a lot of it. And I talked to him. Uh, quite a bit for that story. And he told me a lot of stories that just didn't fit in my story. And I I wish I could have, but just some, some fun stuff. Like, you know, he, he lives outside of Houston, Texas, near Beaumont. He's got a ranch, uh, five or six hours away. He bought a plane and and got himself a pilot's license so he could fly out there and and go hunting on his ranch more often. Um, uh, he, he, he doesn't wear certain colors of clothing when he's on the road, because he doesn't want any fan to think he's Uh, uh, favoring one team or the other. So when when he announced, announced, well, he didn't announce it, but a referee site reported that he was retiring. I still had his contact information. so I called him up and talked to him about what it was like to retire, uh, why he was deciding to retire. He's going to join Walt Anderson in the NFL to help train officials there. Um, He had actually gotten very close to becoming an NFL ref a number of years ago, but then that referee strike happened, if you remember that. And yeah. So by the time, by the time things came, got back in order, he had already been on the higher end of kind of the age bracket that they want. So he had kind of all pretty much aged out of it at that point. So he figured he wanted to do, figured he would do a few few more years of college football. And then the big 12 mountain West people kind of wanted to split up his crew because they were doing such a good job, so he figured this would be a good time to, to jump onto something else. So it was a lot of fun to talk to. He's a really interesting guy, and I've I've got that story pinned at the top of my of my Twitter profile.
0: It's awesome. It's really really good stuff. You can find him at Chris Vanini on Twitter. Yes. And like you said, he has his story pinned on the top of his account. Can't miss it. It's it's a must read. Chris, uh, speaking of pleasure to uh, people to talk with, you've been one of them. Thank you so so much for your time. Thank you, Chris. And uh, you're one of the best. And we'll talk to you soon.
1: Yep. Thanks for having me. Hi,
0: right, buddy. Stay safe.